Amen. Amen. You guys go ahead and take a seat. It is finally, in my mind, the Christmas season. I know some of you started getting your peppermint lattes in October, but it is the Christmas season now, and that means Advent. If you're new to the, the Christian life or if you just didn't grow up in a tradition that talks about Advent, Advent is this idea of preparing your heart and your mind for the coming of the Lord. There, there's something good about this that happens in our minds as we prepare for December 25th, and we're going we're gonna to do that over the next couple weeks by looking at one passage of scripture in, <clears throat> in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, if you have a Bible, meet me there. We're going to be there for the next couple weeks, so you can mark your place there and we'll remain in that passage. We're going to look at the names of God in Isaiah chapter 9. If you didn't know, if you didn't know, names are significant. How many of you guys have kids? Anybody? When you decided that you were going to name your kid, it was an incredibly difficult thing, I would imagine. You know, when we had our first kid, uh, I remember we, we named her Emma, and at that time, Emma wasn't a super popular name, come to find out the very next year, it's the most popular name in the world, and everybody named their kid Emma, but, but we, we decided that we wanted to do something with all of their names that, that had some biblical significance to it. So, so we wrestled really hard with their names. One, Emma is Emma Marie, if you think Mary in uh, French, like, we, we, we like that, sounded better. And then you had Addison Grace. Um, we love the name Grace. It, it, in Greek, it's the word charis, and we really thought about naming her charis, but we had a friend that decided to take that ahead of time, so we couldn't go there. And then we had Elliot James. Elliot is the transliteration of the word God, or El, um, which is, I think, Elohim. It's, it's the word God, or Elijah, actually. And then, and then Keller. Keller is named after the Yoda himself, Tim Keller. If you didn't know this, my name is William Alexander Lowe. Like, personally, I think it's a pretty strong name. I think it was a really great name, but somewhere along the lines, my parents decided that they were going to go with Billy. They went with like from sophisticated, you should be a king to hillbilly overnight. And it shaped who I am. Think about other names. When I name a name, what comes to your mind? When I say Martin Luther King Jr., what comes to your mind? See, that name resonates with you. <clears throat> it's so powerful that every single city in the United States of America has a name, has a road named after him. And Martin Luther King Jr., if you didn't know this, MLK's real name isn't Martin Luther. He is named after Martin Luther, the great reformer. His name carries significance. When you say his name, you think hero. You think civil rights. How about Tiger Woods? With a name like that, he better have been the goat. Because could you imagine if he wasn't good and he had to walk around with the name Tiger? Right? His name mattered. How about Hitler or Judas? You don't see people lining up to name their kids Adolf because his name matters and it has significance to it. Matter of fact, I, I, I decided that I was going to look on the internet at some of the craziest names out there because some of you are going to regret the names that you named your kids one day. Michael Jackson named his kid Spoon, if you didn't know. Here's my favorite one. Somebody named their kid Samsung or how about Chris P. Bacon? Maybe my favorite one of all times is Mo Lester. Yeah, right. Oh, you know, the names that you are given are significant. And what I want to show you is that God is really intentional with names. So he gives you several of them to talk about when you talk about Jesus. So grab your Bible again, Matthew or Isaiah chapter nine, and let's explore this amazing passage. All right. Verse two. Here's what it says. The people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The nation of Israel had walked away from God, okay, and it had become pretty dark. If you, if you didn't know this, and I don't have time to get into the history, but the nation of Israel had two civil wars, and it had broken out into two kingdoms. You had 10 kingdoms in the north called Israel, and then you had two kingdoms in the south called Judah, okay? During that time, the northern kingdom, who they're referring to here, had started to walk in deep darkness. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in that downward spiral that happens when you make bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, and at some point, you just find yourself in deep darkness. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in that place, but that place feels pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're thinking about Christmas, and you're thinking, what in the world could I do? Check out the very next line. Those people who had walked in deep darkness have seen a great light. And those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You see it? You see it? It doesn't say that they came to the light. It says that the light came to them. That is so significant. God wasn't telling the nation of Israel who had walked away from him, had walked into rebellion, had found themselves in deep darkness. He doesn't say, clean up your mess. What does he say? He says, I will come to you. Y'all, the hope of Christmas is that the light comes down to messy people. That the light comes to people like you and I. And it doesn't really matter what you've done. It tells you that even in your deep darkness, the light will appear. See, if you're dwelling in that land of deep darkness right now, here's what you need to understand. God will come. How do you know this? Look at John chapter 1. In the beginning, John says, was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, here it is, was life, and the life was the, see it? The light of men. That light, watch it, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's the amazing thing about Christmas. That, that light wasn't a thing. That light was a person. This is what he's telling you back in Isaiah, the nation of Israel who had rebelled, who had walked away, needed to understand the same exact thing that you need to understand today. You can't dig yourself out of your hole. You can't create the light, but you don't have to either. See, this is the beauty. Hope came from outside. That's what you see in Isaiah chapter 9. It came from outside, and you need to understand that that hope wasn't a thing. That hope was a person, and that person came to overcome darkness, and darkness cannot overcome it. Did you know that in ancient times, December 25th, which a lot of scholars actually believe would have been the exact day that Jesus was born, and in ancient times, December 25th was known as the darkest day of the year. And I find it to be absolutely amazing that the day that we celebrate the birth of our Savior is the time when antiquity would tell you was the darkest day of the year. You know, those Christmas trees that you have in your house, you ever think about what they represent? They're not just some cute little tree that we put up. They're the light of the world hung on the tree. That's what you should look at every time you go downstairs, is that your Lord and Savior, the light of the world, hung himself on a tree, and you celebrate his birth every single year by looking at this tree that should be the epicenter of your house. You see, what you find here is that if you are living in deep darkness, be reminded that the light of the world came into your darkness to die in your place so that you can find hope in him. Now, check out verse 1. I skipped that, but let's go back to it. But there will be no gloom. For her who is in deep anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the latter time, he has shown the glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Last year, last February, I had the opportunity to go stand in this exact site in the northern part of Israel. What you have is you have this mountain range that sits right here, and on one side of it is, is the Mediterranean Sea, and then on the other side of it is this beautiful, green, and lush valley called the Valley of Armageddon. And in that valley, historians would tell you there's been more bloodshed in that valley than any other place in human history. See, you had this road that traveled through this valley of Armageddon that was in this fertile crescent where people would fight over this land. This is the land of deep darkness. Everything that could have gone wrong happened in this place. Now think about this. Jesus was born in Galilee. Now, in Bethlehem, he lived in Galilee. Like, we, we get that, like, just, just so nobody emails me later. But that was in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. In this place, in this place, this obscure place, in the north, deep darkness, the light was shown to them first. It's not an accident that God is trying to show you something beautiful and significant here. God doesn't come to the religious. He comes to the needy. He comes to the broken. He has come to those who are in deep darkness who needed a savior. That's what he's telling them. Even though you got yourself into this mess, I will come and fix it. Notice in verse 3, every single pronoun here is about what God does, not about what they did. You, he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased his joy. They rejoice because, or they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders and the rod of the oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel with the fire. This land that had seen more bloodshed than anywhere else in the world, he tells you God is going to fix it. But not only is he going to fix it, he's going to fix it like the unlikely hero on the day of Midian. If any of you Bible people understand what's going on here, he's referring to Gideon, where he took Gideon's army of 30,000 people and reduced it down to 300 people to show Gideon that he will fight his battle for him, that it's not going to be by strength or might, but it will be by his grace. And he was reminding you again that the Christmas story is that God will enter into your darkness and he will do what you never could do. He will complete what you never could do. He will be gracious. Jesus is gracious, but he's so much more than gracious. I think this is the part of the story that we don't think about a lot, is that Jesus is also a mighty warrior that came to do battle against the evil of this world, and he will spread the gospel to the nations. You see it there? He has multiplied the nations, it says. <laughs> that means that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, like it says in Revelation chapter 7, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will stand around the throne of God and worship him. Think about this. This is hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus Acts chapter one, Acts chapter two. Those 11 people, those 11 disciples take the gospel to the nations. And ever since that time, billions of people have come to worship Jesus and it is happening. How do I know it's happening? Because you are the ends of the earth. I think you forget that. I think we think we're the epicenter of the world, but no, the gospel started in Israel and you're the ends of the earth and the gospel is here. And you have people in this room from every tribe, tongue and nation worshiping Jesus See, that's what he was telling you hundreds of years. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to accomplish my plan. 
what you need to do is you need to realize that I am jealous for you and I want you to worship me. How do I know that? Verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, he says. That is the key to the entire passage. Who's gonna do this? A God that is so zealous for you that he will break evil and he will fight for you. Y'all, the Christmas story is not about a cuddly Jesus laying in a manger. It's not about some eight ounce, six, six pound baby Jesus. It's about a sacrificial lamb who came to love and serve you. It's not a lifetime story that's been over-commercialized. What you have to understand is that the baby Jesus is about a cosmic war where God would come into human history and he would die in your place, that he would live your perfect life like we celebrate with baptisms, and he will raise from the dead in order to put death to death to give you his ultimate peace. By the way, on that same trip, this is absolutely incredible. We went to Bethlehem. We went to the caves, which historians would tell you that Jesus would have been born in. And, and, and we were talking to this rabbi, and he says, do you feel these walls? And we're in the cave, and the cave is where the sheep, where the shepherds would have lived. He says, you see how sharp those walls are? He says, listen, here's what they would do. They would wrap the sheep in swaddling cloth so that they didn't take and hit the walls and get scratches on them so that they would be perfect for sacrifice. You realize in the Bible, there's only two times in the entire Bible that the verbs to be laid down and wrapped up are put together. It's at Jesus's birth and it's at his resurrection, at his death. See, here's what's going on here. It's the most beautiful picture ever. Jesus would become the lamb of God made for sacrifice. That they would wrap up so that he could live your perfect life and he could become your sacrificial lamb. That is grace. He is the lamb of God. But don't get confused. He's also the lion of Judah. And I don't know about you, but lions aren't cute, cuddly cats. Lions are ferocious beasts who come to do war against whatever gets in their way. Me and my son, huh, it, it might be a little morbid, but our favorite show is Africa's Deadliest. And we watch it like every night. And that's like the show where you get to see all the kills. Y'all, lions are the bomb. All right? They, anything that gets in their way, they destroy. That's what Jesus is. He is your lamb of God that was sacrificed for you, but he is the lion of Judah. When he comes back one day, he is gonna do war against the darkness of this world. See, the answer to your future hope is not in your might or strength, but it is in his grace. Verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. In this one verse, you see one of the most incredible pieces of theology in the entire world. You see both the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. And both are absolutely necessary. Let me show it to you. For unto us, a child is born. That is his humanity. Jesus himself was a human born into this world. He was fully man. And that's really important because Jesus being fully man means that he could absorb everything that you've ever done. And he understands he was tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted and yet did not succumb to those temptations. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus is the for only human being that has ever existed that existed before he was born? He came into this world as a person. Unto us a child is born, but check out, the next, check out the next statement. To us a son is given. You see the construction of this statement? He was given, John 3, 16. You ever think about that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This tells you that he came from outside. 
So because he was given, he is fully God. He is fully man and he's fully God. He has eternally existed. He, nothing has, he, he existed before time. Jesus is the only human being that has ever existed before time, but not only was he tempted in every way as a human being would be, but he, he never succumbed. He was perfect and sinless in every way, doing what you could never do. He is fully God. Like the old Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, if you didn't know what these words mean, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. In case you didn't know this, the governments of this world, like it says, will bow down to this king. That means that this king This king doesn't sit in the oval office of the White House. This king sits in the heavenly throne, and he rules the world. See, this king, though, this king didn't come as a mighty warrior or a bully. He came as a child made for sacrifice. He came came as a humble, innocent being so that he could do what you and I could never do. He would win the world's affections by laying down his life for you. And in his name, his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's slow down over the next several weeks and let's look at the different names of Jesus. Again, if you didn't know this, names in the Bible are significant because they're not just your name. They're a representation of your identity. Think about Jacob. If your name's Jacob, I'm sorry, but your name actually in Hebrew means the great deceiver or heel grabber. It comes from the story of Jacob and Esau, two twins who were born into this world. And Jacob being the younger brother literally is grabbing the heel of his brother, trying to pull him back into the womb so that he can be the firstborn, which is what he became was the great deceiver. And his entire life was filled with deception. Everything that he did was marked by deception until one day when he wrestles with God alone in the wilderness and God changes his name. He says, Jacob, you will no longer be called Jacob. You will be called Israel or the promise. See, what, think about in the New Testament. In the New Testament, oh, one of my favorite parables is about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. By the way, if you didn't know this, it's the only parable that Jesus does that he gives somebody a name. And what's fascinating to me is that person that's named is the poor guy who goes to heaven, and it's almost as if the rich guy who goes to hell loses his identity. His name was significant. Or how about this? How about Jesus himself? When Moses, when Moses is wandering and he says, God, what shall I tell people your name is? He says, tell them my name is Ego and me, which is the Greek construction of I am. I am the great I am. Do you know why the Pharisees killed Jesus? Not because of the claims he made, but whenever they asked him, what is your name? He tells them, I am, and they fall to the ground. And then from that point forward, they want to kill him because he's claiming to be God. Philippians chapter 2 tells you that in the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow. You see, names matter. Abram. Abram gets a new name with a promise. His name is Abraham. You see it all the way through the scriptures. Names matter. And y'all, what you get here is God telling you that there are four characteristic names about Jesus that you should relate to him by. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. 
So let's talk about wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor is two Hebrew words that when you combine them have significance. Wonderful means something like beyond understanding. Like so wonderful that words cannot describe. Counselor, counselor means like a guide or a friend, but this is significant. Not just a guide or a friend, but a guide or a friend who sits in a position of authority to speak into your life. Think about those two things together. Wonderful counselor. It means that Jesus did something so amazing, so astounding, so beyond words that he's wonderful. Too wonderful for words. And yet, because he did that, he now has the authority to speak into your lives. Y'all, that's what the Christmas story is all about. It is so wonderful that it is hard to describe that the God who hung the stars in the sky broke the silence of this world after 400 years by speaking to a child named Mary and telling you, a child is born, a son is given, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Think about the storyline of the Bible, that this son would be born and would live in Galilee in deep darkness. See, in the beginning, if you look at your Bible, these 66 books written over the course of thousands of years by multiple different authors, some of which had never met each other, nor were they contemporaries, were telling one complete story. And the compilation of this Bible, these 66 books, have a meta-narrative, meaning, meaning that these 66 books, although are single books, when you put them together, tell one of the most amazing storylines ever told in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created but he didn't just create, he created you in his image, the Imago Dei, in order for you to be in perfect relationship with him. Relationship is at the center point of the Bible. So what does God do? He takes Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, and he says, hey, I want to give you a choice. I want you to choose whether you want to follow me or follow yourselves. They chose to follow themselves, which is really significant and important because what they didn't understand at the time is because of Adam's one human being's decision to rebel against God. Watch this. This is so important. He became the representative head of all of humanity, which makes sense. We still do this today. When the president speaks, he speaks for all the United States of America, whether you like that or not. He is your representative head, okay? But why is that important? Because if Adam can be your representative head that brought sin into the world in the same exact way, Jesus himself can be your representative head that can actually die in your place and, big word, impute or give you his righteousness. He can reverse the curse and do what Adam never could do. Genesis chapter 1, there was a fall. They walked away from God. And for the next several thousand years, God continued to pursue his people and pursue his people and to pursue his people. All the while, his people rebelled, rebelled, rebelled. God says, I want to be your king. They say, no, give us a different king. So he gives them another king until the end of the Old Testament. And if you didn't know this, between your last book of the Old Testament and the book of Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. And after 400 years of silence, that baby, that baby came for sacrifice broke into the world, and he doesn't chase after you anymore. He does what you never could do in your place. All the while, one day God is going to come back, and he is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes, and he is going to put death to death. The inauguration of his kingdom started with a baby. I don't know if you understand this or not, but that is the most wonderful story ever told. And it's wonderful because it's true. 
I love this. Maybe, maybe one of the books that has shaped my thinking more than anything recently is a book written by a guy named Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but the historian from Oxford University who is not a Christian that basically says that you cannot understand the world without Jesus. He wrote a book called Dominion. If you're into like 1,500-page books that are really boring and really academic, that book will change your life. It's the most significant moment in human history. And yet it's so simple and so magnificent that most of us can't wrap our heads around it. Because think about what Christmas says about you. Watch this. Christmas says you are so bad that Jesus had to die for you. And yet so loved that he wanted to die for you. And maybe the most difficult thing about Christmas is is that it says that Jesus did everything necessary to save you, which means you can't earn it. Which means that at the foot of the cross, all human beings are equal in the eyes of God. You are no better than anybody else. And that takes a tremendous amount of humility for you and I to relinquish control and authority over our lives and to give it to him. Which is why Jesus is not only wonderful, but he's counselor. See, it's hard because what you want and what, you, what I want oftentimes is we want a friend to give us good advice. But the Bible says that Jesus didn't come to give you good advice. He came authoritatively to give you good news. See, Jesus isn't just the savior of the world. He is also your Lord. He is king. And that means if he is king, you are not. And that's hard for people. Most of our fears come from the fact that we are still trying to occupy a throne that isn't rightfully ours. Jesus ain't trying to be your co-pilot, y'all. He's telling you to get up out of the seat and move out of the way. Because either he occupies that seat and controls your life or he doesn't. I've told you this before. Jesus is either Lord of all or he ain't Lord at all. So the question is for all of us is do you want good advice or do you want him to be your Lord and Savior? The gospel is that Jesus, having been your great king, stood in your place, died for you, and he wants to guide your life with all of authority. That means that that he is either the way, the truth, and the life, or he's not. You have to choose. It means he calls the shots. But not just that. It means that he wants to come to give you comfort, and he wants to listen, too. See, think about this. He's not just Lord. He's Father and friend. And I think those two things are amazing. I, have, have any of you ever been to counseling? For some odd reason in our culture, we, we give counseling a horrible stigma. But I'm telling you, counseling's changed our life. There were a couple times in years past where Allison and I were in a bad spot and we went to counseling. And, and that counselor gave us the tools necessary to learn how to be better parents and better husbands and wives. See, the best thing about a counselor is they tend to be able to speak objectively without bias because they stand outside of what you're going on, what's going on in your life. But oftentimes, they understand what you're going, what's going on in your life because they've lived that. Jesus is the best counselor in the world because he's fully human. You know what that tells you? That means he lived the perfect life, but he lived a life. He's the only God in any religion that understands the human experience. Think about it. Jesus was betrayed by his best friend. You ever think about that? Jesus was beaten to the point of death. He was hung on a cross as an innocent man. And because he is both the Godhead, he also understands what it's like to lose a child. I promise you, 
The scriptures tell you he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He will walk with you all the days of his life. And if you need somebody who understands your experience, there's nobody like Jesus that you can talk to. See, when you need to lean in and learn how to grieve properly or express your anger, the word of God, which John chapter one tells you is Jesus, is there in those moments. That's why I love the Psalms. The Psalms are brilliant because they, they cover the range of the human experience. Like when you don't understand how to control your emotions, go read the Psalms. Think about it. You can learn how to worship and hardship in the Psalms. You can learn how to be angry in the Psalms. When life isn't fair, and it's often not, you can learn what it's like to deal with your, your struggles and a God who would fight for you, but also a God who understands what it's like to walk in your shoes. See, he wants to enter into your pain and he wants to enter into your rejection and he wants to enter into your joy. He is a wonderful counselor. See, the God who entered into humanity has all the resources necessary to save you and yet it's the only religion in the entire world that actually claims that your God would enter into human history. You have a God who really understands your experience. He gets what it's like to wake up with disappointments and fears and he understands the complexity of life. He understands what it's like, and he's not mad at you when you struggle through it. Some of you need to learn how to give yourself a break and simply walk with Jesus. I love Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 11. Come to me, Jesus says. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the invitation? The invitation to come. You know, it's not an accident that the very first name that God tells you to relate to Jesus with is Wonderful Counselor. He wants to listen to you. He wants you to come. How many of you, how many of you know it's not easy to listen? Think about it, guys. I bet your wife knows that. Right? We all want to be heard, but none of us want to listen. And yet I'm telling you, listening is one of the greatest skills on the planet. And Jesus is always there to listen because he cares for you. How do I know he cares for you? Peter says it like this for you in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves. By the way, I always say this, but nobody ever hears me. Humility is always a verb in the Bible. It's not who you are, it's what you do. You hear what I'm saying? There's a distinction. You're not a humble person. Humble yourself. It's an action. It's what you do. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Did you know that God cares for you? You know, God isn't some distant God that set the world in motion and walked away. And listen to me, salvation is not primarily an invitation to go to heaven. Here's what salvation is. Salvation is an invitation to relationship. That starts right now. That's the point. There is something, something about hope that isn't tied to your circumstances, but it's tied to your future and the God who entered into it that brings you into relationship with him. In Jesus, you don't, you don't just have a future hope. You have a present reality. He is inviting you in. What would it look like if you cast your anxieties on him, if you went to him, if you trusted him? Better yet, what would it look like if you just started naming what some of those anxieties were and dealt with them? Can I tell you? Did a little research this week. According to the internet, which never lies, there are four things that Americans fear more than anything. Let's just talk about them. 
I want to address them real quick. Number one is the government. Y'all, that's reasonable. Let me just tell you, that's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. The fact is, is that most Americans are skeptical of any institution, and the government seems to be the worst of all. We've got a guy in the White House right now that might not be cognitively there, most likely running against a guy who has moral corruptions and criminal indictments longer than O.J. Simpson on a bad day. The economy's terrible. There seems to be no moral compass. We're on the cusp of World War III. There's nothing to be afraid of, right? Here's the problem with that fear. It lacks an understanding of who actually runs this country. See, the God who hung the stars in the sky is still the God who controls the nations, and he says he will move them around like puppets. He is still sovereign over what happens in the Oval Office, and listen to me, he is still sovereign about what happens around your dinner table. See, you don't have to trust the government. That's okay. But you also can't put your trust in the government. You need to put your trust in God. The reason why so many of us are afraid of the government is because we give them far too much credit. I'm telling you, our king isn't a donkey or an elephant. Our king is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God who doesn't sit in the Oval Office or the White House. He sits on the throne in heaven and he moves these kings around to accomplish his plans. And if the last 2,000 years haven't shown you this, you're not paying attention. So cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Here's number two, the economy. I don't know about you, but every time I turn on the news, I got some guy I don't trust telling me that inflation has gone down. And I'm like, have you been to the grocery store lately? I bought three items and it cost me like $268. (laughs) Y'all, the taxes on my house continually go up. The price of goods are skyrocketing. I tried to book a flight to Asia last week and it was double the amount that it was last year. My salary isn't increasing at the same rate as that is. I can tell you that. That's a legitimate fear. It is. Like, what would happen if the national debt keeps going up and you can't pay your credit card bills or all you can pay is the interest on your student loans? You're paying that for the next 684 years. Like, I get it. But do you see? Do you see what the Bible says, Matthew 6? Matthew 6, why are you worried, Jesus says? Don't you know that I will provide for you? I want to put something into perspective, and it might be tough for you to hear, but listen to me. Although the economy is bad, You still have a roof over your heads. You still have cars that you're driving. Your kids still have clothes on their backs and they still go to great schools. Most of you are not worried about where your next meal is coming from and you still have a job. I'm telling you, God has given you far more than you tend to give him credit for. And he will care for you. If your ultimate hope is in God, listen to what you need to do. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Stop worrying about the stock market that's more volatile than a roller coaster and worry about a steady God who has been doing this for 2,000 years. Here's number three. Us and our loved ones dying. That's a legitimate fear. It should be up there soon. Here's what I know is that when, when Jesus' friend died, he wept. That tells you something. It tells you that life matters, and you shouldn't take that for granted. But here's what I also know is that when Jesus went to the cross, he put death to death. And your ultimate hope is in the fact that the gospel is true. And that's why I challenge every single one of you, memorize this. Memorize Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You see the uniting of a relationship again. This is your future. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Watch this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying anymore for the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne. I pointed this out before. Do you realize that kings only sit when the battle is over? He who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. That's your future. God wiping away every tear from your eyes, making death no more. If you are in Christ, this is the only death you will ever experience and you will live for all of eternity. And at the same time, God gets it because he lost a son. See, he gets the sting of death. He gets the fact that this isn't the way that the world is supposed to be, and that's why he came. There's a tension that you have to live in. The tension is that this world is so messed up, and that death is not something that you should have ever experienced. It's so abnormal to the human experience that you, you don't want it to happen, and yet, and yet, death is as guaranteed as taxes. 100% of us are going to experience it. So here's your answer. A child is given. See that? Jesus came to put death to death, and the sting of death can't touch any of you who call on the name of the Lord. That's what makes it so wonderful. That's what makes Christmas amazing. So what are you fearful of? I would tell you that if you fear death, it's probably because you don't fully grasp the gospel. Here's number four. Elves. According to research, the average American has an irrational fear of Oompa Loompas and elves. Actually, Harvard Business would tell you that is a combination between the green colors and the creepy songs that they sing that makes every American want to crawl into a hole and die. That's not true. But it might be my greatest fear, and that one's completely rational, so I have nothing for that. Here's the reality. Fear is a real part of our lives, and we fear because we don't trust the God who is actually ultimately in control of our lives. See, Jesus, our wonderful counselor, he can take all of your fears and all of your anxieties if you would put them on him. Dorothy Sayers, the great British novelist, listen to what she said. She said, the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from trivial irritations of family life to cramping restrictions to the hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors and pains and humiliations, defeats, despairs, and even death. He was born in poverty and he suffered infinite pain all for us and, though, and thought it all well worth his while. No matter what you think about Jesus, here's what you can know. He understands. He gets your greatest hopes and he gets your greatest fears. He understands what it's like to be disappointed and what it's like to sacrifice. And he wants to hear from you. Y'all, in this dark world, it might look like darkness, but let me just tell you, light is found in Jesus. Not in your circumstances. The Christmas story is all about this, that Jesus came to break the silence, to bring light into your darkness, to give you steadiness, even in the midst of a very unsteady world. 
Y'all, because Jesus is our wonderful counselor, he can be your comfort and hope too. You know, Isaiah chapter 9, it actually brings its roots from Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, God tells the prophet Isaiah to go to King Ahaz and to give him a sign. King Ahaz, he's rebelling against God. He's in the northern kingdom, and he doesn't really want a sign. He just wants his temporary circumstances fixed, like so many of us. We're like, God, I really don't want your sign. I just want you to fix my problem. So God comes to Isaiah, and he says, give him a sign anyway, and this is what the sign says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. 700 years later, your wonderful counselor, on that Christmas morning, he came with the greatest gift of all. But he didn't come to take care of your circumstances. He came to take care of your root problems. And I know some of you are thinking, that's the problem with Christmas. It's all butterflies and rainbows. You're telling me that one day God's going to fix my problems and he's going to fix the root issues. But what about what I'm going through right now? And you're thinking, if you're honest, you're thinking if God was really good, he'd have put evil to death 2,000 years ago. Now, here's my, th- here's my response to that. Really? If God were to put evil to death 2,000 years ago, do you think he'd be here right now? What if it's God's grace that he's withheld his hand for such a time as this, for people like you and people like me. And what he really wants to do is he really wants to get after the root issues. He doesn't want to take care of the illnesses that are plaguing your hearts. He wants to take care of the thing that's causing the illnesses altogether. I'm telling you there's a deeper issue than what you see on the surface, and Christmas isn't just about a cute, cute cuddly baby in a manger. It's about him coming to fix your problems, your salvation issues. Like Blaise Pascal famously said, every single one of us has this God-shaped vacuum in all of our hearts that we are trying to fill with all of this stuff and none of it will ever satisfy you, but there's a king that will. You were designed for God. That argument right there is what changed C.S. Lewis's life whenever he said the same thing. He says, if you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that you were made for another world. You were, you were, and it's wonderful. And Christmas It's about filling that hole with the perfect shaped baby who would live your perfect life in your place, die your death in your place, and give you new life. See, we all have a common problem named sin, but we all have a common savior named Jesus. And it is so wonderful. Christmas is an invitation to come back home, to receive a name that is greater than any name that you can achieve on your own. He's your wonderful counselor that has invited you in to an eternal relationship. Let me pray for you. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Jesus, you are wonderful and mighty and sovereign. You never left us, nor did you forsake us. You knew us in our mother's womb. God, and you had a plan set in motion before the time began to redeem your people. So Lord, I pray that during this Advent season, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for what's to come, that we wouldn't miss the obvious truth that's right in front of us, that a baby set in a manger 2,000 years ago not only changed human history, but can change our reality. 
Help us to worship you, Jesus, to live for you because you died for us. In Jesus' name, amen.